I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And you're very welcome along to the Huddle Breakdown. It is almost Christmas time, so it's time for the Christmas special edition of the Huddle Breakdown. On today's show, we're not going to be talking in depth about any particular game. We're going to be having more of a discussion about all things Celtic going this season, last season, uh, some of the trends that's been happening, and we're even going to dive into the Super League situation with the ECJ ruling in the uh, European Union on the Super League. Um, somebody has been asking about that on Twitter, so we're going to dive into what that potentially could mean for Celtic. And to do that, I'm joined by Alan Morrison, Celtic by Numbers. Hello, happy Christmas, almost happy Christmas. Yeah, uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family and friends, Enda. And James, Juco James is on the line as well. He has a nice Christmas jumper on, the only festive yeah. member of the Huddle Breakdown crew today. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, these are my jammies, actually. Since it's I'm, since it's morning, no, I'm just no. roll out of bed, so <laughs> I'm uh, wearing my Christmas jammies all this week. <laughs> well, I mean that's allowed. We we haven't lost track of the days just yet, but in the next couple of weeks, we might just uh, do everything from our PJs. I think that's a, a plan going forward. Oh, Alan's <laughs> holding a up a, a little golden star, so he's not the only. Uh, James is not I, I the only. I have a very only. small Christmas tree next to me. I just can't quite reach it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm the only miserable bastard of the show then, so because I don't have anything. <laughs> right. Well, we'll kick off with current situations. We'll talk about the Super League later on because I think most people are more interested in what's going on in the day to day with Celtic at the minute and. Alan James, we were talking about this on the Axum charity weekender over the weekend, the aftermath of the Hearts defeat where Celtic are at the minute. And we kind of covered the topic well in depth in terms of the recruitment and what needs to be fixed and the board situation. But in terms of on the field, Alan, if I were to ask you to compare where we're at, actually just based on the level of performance, the points, the losses, the wins, all the on-field action in itself with last season in comparison to this season. Take out like even just the fan negativity, the feeling around the football that's been played, the, the general feeling around Celtic. What to you is the big difference this year on the field than last season? Yeah, I mean, well, again, we keep circling around it every week, but it is the quality of the player on the pitch. It's, it's just much reduced. And 
add that to the fact that the team don't seem to be playing as cohesively as they were last season as a in terms of the you know the system and the instructions with which Postacoglu you know set set them out and you know i i in my i was thinking about this during the week and you know the players that, that Ange recruited and and if you you know if you read which we all have extensively testimony of Ange's methods uh, what it's like in the dressing room, what it's like on the training pitch, etc., is that you know he's a he was a very um, prescriptive coach, a very positional orientated coach who, you know, and the players in a sense had the game. One of the one of the most common um, traits that you hear is that players saying that you know he simplified the game for me. He, you know, his the, my personal instructions were were, were were easy to follow, easy to understand. And as I say, especially if you're a, if you're a, you know, not an elite level player, um, if you're having elements of decision making almost not removed, I mean, it's not it's not that mechanical, but it certainly clarified and, and and pared down somewhat in terms of where you should be on the pitch given different scenarios, then you've removed a lot of complexity for a player about the game, and. I, 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 and, and what that means is that you're, you've probably um, reduced a lot of risk in terms of performance because decision making, I think, is arguably the, the hardest part of the game. So if, if he's simplified that to such an extent that more or less, and he's bought players that he knows are going to fit into that model, then you, you end up with a cohesion that we saw last season. If, on the other hand, you then have a coach who takes the same group of players who are used to being managed in that way and doesn't give them the same level of prescription, so it's less uh, less precise about where you need to be and leaves it more to you to decide where you need to be in given different circumstances. And suddenly you're putting a lot more decision-making responsibility back onto the players. Are those players actually good enough uh, at that at, at, and in those attributes to actually make the most of it? I mean, the, the most telling um, is, is almost, the, to me, is almost the reverse of that in that, who, which player looked a little bit surly and a little bit unhappy under Ange, Matt O'Reilly, and who is absolutely blossoming now uh, under 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 Rogers? And think back to what I said earlier in the year. The reason that O'Reilly is performing so, one of the reasons he's performing so well, is he's given a lot of license to decide where he's got to be on the pitch. Am I should I be back with McGregor? Should I be, should I be attacking the box? Should I be somewhere in between? Right? He didn't have that latitude. Right? Matt O'Reilly is a very intelligent player. He probably felt constrained. He, he probably felt limited in, in how he was expressing himself on the field. So I think he he's an exception. He's what he's a player who has the cognitive skills to play in a system where he's required to make a lot of decisions. And possibly a lot of the rest of them aren't. And they're struggling. Mm. Uh, well, so that's that's you know that, that covered a lot of ground there. But that, that's that's the way I would one of the ways I would think about. It. I don't think it's just that. I do think yeah. specifically in the wings, we're, we're asking limited players to to be given responsibility to go one to one with no virtually no support in that area of the pitch, and they don't have either the technical skills or the decision making skills to do it. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in the way that we're playing. Mm. Well, you. The thing that you mentioned there about the decision-making on the field is interesting because, James, one of the things we don't really delve into too much in the show is personality because, firstly, we don't know these people. We don't know what their personalities are. Um, but it's also 
pretty difficult to measure someone's personality unless you've actually uh, met the person. But you mentioned before about AZ Alkmaar using, uh, you know, the uh, scanners to uh, work out decision-making when they're training to train up the cognitive side of the game. But for me, this is sort of a a very difficult task of maturity, bringing in players who are mature enough to make the decisions themselves. And it's it's one of those things that you do notice sometimes with modern day players is that if they were with a manager who over coaches them, who is, you know, a, a real micromanager, that they struggle with what Alan is saying, somebody who's not a micromanager, that, um, that sometimes they don't have the decision-making abilities because previously they weren't allowed to do it. So maybe that just is going to take a little while. I think that there's there's um, system issues here, as Alan said, and then there's also the um, kind of player characteristic aspect of this. Um, and, and, and that was the, you know, that was my assessment under Ange is that uh, the um, player characteristic part was being smoothed over by the orchestration of Ange and how that interplayed with um, the domestic competition. And so that's, I, I, I think we, I think a lot of what was going on with player talent levels was being masked because of that. And uh, all of the things that Alan pointed out, I believe unsheathed a lot of that, unfortunately, uh, meaning that the players really weren't that good. Um, and, uh, that it, it very much was the system's interplay with, with, um, uh, with the competition. And we see that to a degree with, on a relative basis, as we've discussed in recent weeks, when we were 11 v 11 in the champions league, that interplay once again, meaning that the system resilience relative to the competition was very good. And we were able to compete um, at a reasonable level, uh, e- even though our you know talent levels were, were, were much lower than you, you, you might think they would be able to, to have that output. So, uh, yeah, that that's, I, I think the big issue is for me is it's not just results. It's there's material shifts in underlying performance metrics and it's not only occurred, uh, for us season over season, the more alarming part is that since Clement came in and, you know, Alan and I talked about this quite a bit, the, the, um, the hope, that Beal would be there for as long as possible. And Clement is a guy, he's a serious guy. He has a serious CV and uh, Rangers are performing as if they have a serious manager now. <laughs> and it, that's the bad news. The good news is there's still some vulnerability in how they're playing and, and their creativity in particular. But if you just kind of line up in the nine league games since Clements came in. So again, not the biggest sample size, but, most of their underlying metrics are more in line with what um, Celtic were, you know, in 1920 or um, during the Ange ball, quote unquote, period, peak period Ange ball. I mean, they've, they've got their kind of non-penalty XG up around, up over one and a half, closer to 1.6. Um, their, What's their penalty XG, about 15? Well, yeah, so that exclusive of that... Um, and, and, and the, the other part of that is they're materially limiting chances from the opposition in open play. And again, that was a big part of how uh, Ange Ball was dominant domestically. Now, again, there's there are some chinks in that armor 
Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, uh, completely morose about all of this stuff. I mean, that their, their average chance quality, they just really struggle to create. And, and that was evident that that was, if you look at the player profiles, who they signed over the summer and just generally their player profiles is they don't lack, or I should say they lack that kind of, um, cognitive talent that we've been talking about as far as, uh, decision-making and chance creation. Um, they they almost have a toxic combination as Alan would say, in, in that regard through their midfield and, and their attacking players. So, but they're, they're just overwhelming teams with their physicality and their athleticism, I would argue with a good manager and, and at the SPFL level, that's enough to be dominant. So as we showed to a, a significant degree in, in the 1920 season, I mean, we were just a, a, an athletic monster relative to the, uh, the domestic competition. If you go back and look at the players that were on that Celtic iteration. So th- that's the, that's a more alarming issue is that we're, you know, for example, we're conceding this season at about double the rate as they are from open play as my dogs uh, decide that there's someone to go see. Uh, so th- to me, that's the, the, the issue is all the things that Alan said, but uh, those are manifesting and measurable, um, identifiable issues and um, chance creations down, average chance creations down. We're still better than them, actually. That's the irony is that even with them um, having uh, made these improvements, a lot of that is on their uh, defensive side in, in um, and again, I think that some of that has to do with th- them having a, a a better manager who has them better organized. Mm. Let's touch on some of the questions and th- I'm going to sort of cover a couple of questions that came in at once because they're all really touching on the same topic and that is short term fixes in terms of what can we do differently to improve things. Uh, the one that comes in with uh, from Dennis McFadden is with the current squad, what formation should we embrace for the next three games? Should Palma play as a number 10? Another couple of people are saying that we should move to three at the back with Liam Scales on the left centre back position, bring in another centre back and push the, the full backs up as wing backs. Um, and a couple of people saying that uh, the midfield needs change. So a lot of people looking for chopping and changing of the formation to make something work, Alan. I think that Brendan Rodgers has tried quite a bit of that, particularly with the midfield. Um, do you see anything material changing from Rodgers in terms of that formation, or do you think he's rigidly going to stick to that four-three-three and just shoehorn the pieces in for the jobs that he thinks he, he needs? So, so I mean, you know, we heard from that um, the, the lovely lad that came on from Leicester City at the beginning of the season about how over Rogers' four seasons there, he was, was fairly flexible, actually, about how he set the team up, depending on the challenges that were faced. And therefore, I, I was kind of expecting a bit more um, flexibility in, in approaches uh, you, you know, uh, this season. Now, obviously, it's, it's, it's only recently that Celtic have actually you know, lost the game in, in the league, um, although I would argue the performances have never been entirely convincing. Um, so I, I think... James and I both have written on this in the week. I think having discussed it, I don't think we're a million miles apart and we kind of collectively came to, I think, to much of the same conclusion, but James will add his his bit to it. But I, I personally, if it was me, I would be looking to change the, the shape of the team um, because there's, there's bits that just, especially on the wings, where you've got you know, a combination of 
poor quality individuals and um, an approach that, which is to isolate the wingers, uh, which I don't think is working. So for me, um, I do think we've got enough players to play more of a, a 4-2 diamond, call it a diamond, call it a box midfield, don't really care what you call it. But um, to me, um, you know, you've, we've got some very good international, two very good international strikers in Maida and Kyogo. I don't think Maida's ever been a winger. I don't think he ever is going to be a winger. I think he does have some utility playing as an out-to-in uh, forward, if you like, in a, in a team that looks to get in behind sides, which isn't often Celtic in league play. Um, and I know he's done that in Japan very successfully. But, you know, given he plays for the national team as a centre-forward, you know, we saw during pre-season how effective he was at centre-forward. Um, Kyogo can wander. He can be more sort of hybrid second striker. And then behind that, I, I, again, because of the paucity of talent in the wide areas, I do think we've got decent players in central midfield. So, you know, some configuration of a holding player and then maybe two sort of up and down players and then a, a more of an advanced 10. I think there's some debate to be had as to who, what constitutes that, you know, um, is Hitati better as a 10 or as one of the one of the eights? Does he have the discipline to play that role? Question mark. O'Reilly probably would be better suited to that eight role to sort of do everything kind of hybrid kind of role. McGregor could probably do it as well, and he could be the holding mid player. I think the problem we've had is we've tried Bernardo and home as more advanced midfielders. I don't think either of those have worked. I like home in the sense of he looks like a proper footballer to me, balance, intelligence. He's got a mix of technical ability and, and physical ability, uh, which I like. I think he would best be played as a six personally, uh, which would allow McGregor and O'Reilly to maybe you know, get forward. And then you're, you're looking at that 10 position, as, as the questioner said there. I wrote about this in the week. I wrote about Louis Palma, who I'm afraid to me, you know, doesn't profile as a winger, really. He looks to me like a, his attribute. If you look at his skill set, he's actually has got some good skills. He's got a tremendous shot. He is um, quite creative in his passing, actually. In fact, he's more creative with his deep passing than Jota was. Um, but he's not as effective as a final third in the final third as Jota was as an outside out and out winger. He's also got a thunderous shot, best to take that centrally than sixty yards out in the touchline. Um, and he's actually pretty good off the ball. His pressing stats are, are impressive. If you had a front three pressing of Palmer, Kyogo Maeda, that would be quite something actually. So you could play Palmer as a ten. You could maybe play Hatati as a ten. I think maybe James doesn't like that idea. So and then you know I think that to your point about the centre backs. Again, I think it's a position where we don't we, we have a lot of numbers, but we don't have a lot of talent. So adding another one, I don't think fixes that. So I think we, we go with two, and then you're left with the two fullbacks, who then probably have got a lot of onus on them to to provide width, which you know is going to be challenging, I think. But it, as I say, as I've said all season, I don't think there's perfect options here. I think we're just trying to make the the least worst option. So that that's the way I would look at it. That's the way I would set up. I think we would. Um, it, we, would, we would, as James said, I'm concerned about the amount of chances we're creating. Having that, having that strong midfield box will tend to strengthen you in the middle of the pitch. Um, so that that would be, I think, an advantage. I think our pressing capability from the front would improve as well. Um, as I say, O'Reilly, Palmer, Kyoko Maeda as a four would be quite, quite, a, quite a, a kind of counter pressing uh, option to have, really. So that's that's my thoughts. Yeah, James, I have a starting 11 and a 
different game plan, but I'll let you go first. What's your quick fix? Is this is this age before beauty? Is that what we're doing here? Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or saving the best for last, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> yeah, all of the above. One of the um, inefficiencies that I I think clubs like Brighton and Red Bull have tried to capitalize Salzburg as well. Uh, you know, obviously within the Red Bull context, is playing more narrow and looking for counter-pressing to disorganize opponents and turn uh, the risk-reward of of trying to create centrally, which is by definition going to be less successful on a percentage basis, meaning that you're you're going to be able to be executing those passes down the side. I mean, that's like the legacy football culture is if, the, if the t- an opponent's going to give you the space down the wings, get it down and then cross it into the box. And what the Brightons of the world have done is say, okay, well, we're going to almost force it through the middle at times, knowing that we are optimizing for that, both from a style of play and from a personnel perspective, in or- knowing that it's inherently going to be less successful on a rate basis, but that we're going to optimize for counter-pressing so that when you have a home playing as a deep-lying midfielder who attempts a line-splitting pass to, let's say, Matt O'Reilly, who's central, uh, you know, as, as the spreadsheet shaggers call it, area 14, right, at that spot outside the box central. And obviously you're going to have defensive midfielders in there. You're going to have center backs in there. It's going to be compressed, not a lot of space, so you've got to have the right kind of players populating that. But most importantly, you then have to have the players deep that can make that pass and then the players that can counterpress when that inevitably goes awry on a not infrequent basis. Because what happens then is you get the, the, the defense is disorganized to a degree as that chaos ensues when the ball is, is not in possession of anyone. So that that's basically a kind of qualitative explanation of what a, a team like Brighton is trying to attempt to a degree. I think we have, to Alan's point, there are no kind of ideal solutions here because our squad composition is, as I've been joking, the, the, the island of misfit toys. Ha- Merry Christmas. Um, so I think Holm and Hatate in particular suit that deep-lying playmaking uh, role, and I think to a lesser degree McGregor in that in that sense. I think that we have people that um, could populate that kind of. Uh, I'll, I'll boil it down. I, I think three, four, uh, two, one is is not. A, you know, again, nothing's ideal. We don't have the wing backs necessarily for it, but by having that box midfield, you have two deep lying playmakers. You have two tens that can be focused on counter-pressing. And that's where I think my my view is a little more radical. I like Maeda in that that 10 role, not because he's creative, but because he, that would almost in an ideal way weaponize his counter-pressing. Uh, and if that's what his focus was, almost like a you know one of my uh, uh, patented cross-sport uh, analogies, uh, almost like a free saf- safety in the NFL. I mean, in the defensive backfield and coverage schemes in the NFL, you have a strong safety and you have the free safety. And the free safety's basically his job is to be a ball hawk and go anywhere, depending on what his read is of the play and where the quarterback's eyes are, that kind of thing. 
And if you deployed Maeda in that kind of ball hawking, counter pressing role centrally, I, I think he could be, I mean, a, a colossus in, in that um, role in the final third. So, and then, you know, the, the mix of the other 10, obviously O'Reilly, and then you could rotate through on the striker side with Kyogo and O, uh, that type of thing. And I mean, can Abata play wing back? Can, um, you know, can Greg Taylor play wing back in that system? I, I, I think so domestically. Again, we're not looking to deploy this uh, in in the Champions League. This is strictly to kind of optimize. We need to get the most points possible between now and not only January, but the end of the season. Mm. And I also, I also think our center backs profile with this very well. Uh, Alan and I have talked about this over time. Welsh being a relatively good ball progressor. Uh, uh, Scales has to a degree, done quite well in that regard, even though he's maybe a little slow on the ball. Uh, Carter Vickers is excellent, and that's kind of central anchor center back role. The last thing I'll say is I think that this would also, by having the third center back in, address one of our other gaping problems, which is set pieces. And that that would give us more size in hopefully being able to defend better uh, with having that extra body that's, you know, at least someone that's... uh, 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 functional in defending mm-hmm. uh, opposition set pieces. Yeah, set pieces are a real concern at the minute. Defending and attacking. It just I've no confidence in Celtic scoring from their set pieces and I've no confidence in them not conceding from their set pieces at the at the minute. So uh definitely needs some work. Okay, here's here's my grand plan and just like Ange Postacoglu, I'm just copying Pep. Um so <laughs> Man City did are doing this really interesting thing with John Stones and it's such a simple uh sort of proposal where they start four center backs across the f- the back four. John Stones is a ball playing midfielder in reality he steps into midfield they they still have three center backs on the on the pitch and they can de- defend the wide spaces when needed. So I don't think Celtic need to start three center backs because I think Johnston can do the center back role quite well. Um now, you do have to, this is all when everybody is fit. So that this that needs to be uh, said from the get-go. So you have a back four of Johnson, um, Carter McCarter, Carter Vickers, Liam Scales, and Cal McGregor is the fourth uh, defender for me. He is not a defender at all. In reality, he's stepping into the midfield where he normally plays, but it allows you to get more bodies further forward. In midfield, you have Hatate, and then further forward, you have Matt O'Reilly, or beside him, you have Matt O'Reilly. Then you have um, you have Palma, Abada, Kyogo, and uh, one more player. I don't know who that is. I don't know which combination of worst case scenario do you go with but the essential values of this would be the Cal McGregor would step into the midfield Celtic would still have three men at the back he would step into the midfield with Hatate as the controlling role and the defending role Matt O'Reilly would then be allowed to push forward into the midfield to basically play that free role without having to worry about having any cover behind him he doesn't need to do any of the dirty work and then you've you're finally getting some more creativity further forward in the pitch and you control the pitch from the halfway line upwards and you just have control of the ball the entire time you pin the opposition in and you it's war of attrition from there on you have better players more creative players getting into better positions and 
eventually win the game. So you're welcome, Brendan Rogers. Problem solved. I actually wrote a piece back in July about the potential for not only Hitate maybe being better suited for uh, a deep lying um, uh, midfield position, playmaking midfield position, but also as an inverted fullback. And, and so I think both him and McGregor, I mean, obviously Hitate played a lot of fullback in Japan before he, he came to Celtic, actually. That was one of the played like three games at left back for Celtic at one point, didn't he? Uh, and right back. Actually, one of his right biggest back. games was at right back. <laughs> he, yeah. I think he had a, two goals and, I mean, he, he kind of marauded and rampaged as a right back when he filled in that one game. You know, defensively is obviously a, a question mark, but with him and McGregor, but the, the, to your point, Endo, the whole point of this is not to uh, have a stud at Celtic in particular, given uh, the, the squad composition we have, that, that, unicorn's not going to exist given the, the island of misfit toys so again as of the issue of least bad option i could see both of those players whether it's Atate as the right back or left back or mcgregor as the left back and then moving into that midfield position as you're proposing uh you know almost in an inverted sense um mm. because with, i just with, don't with, see the the reason behind it i don't i don't see the point in celtic playing four defenders in domestic football because we're never really defending that much. It's sort of that situation where we were chasing the Kilmarnock game and Liam Scales was constantly getting... Now it happened against Harris as well. Liam Scales was constantly getting the ball at the edge of the opposition box. And he's a centre-back. You know? so, so in that case, you're chasing the game. Take the centre-back off. You don't need to get another midfielder onto the pitch. Get a more creative player onto the pitch. The danger is not at your goal. So for me... Celtic can take the risks domestically because, I mean, that's what Angeball was essentially based upon was that, you know, we're going to be constantly attacking, constantly counter-pressing. And if, if we get caught in the break, so be it, we're still going to score four goals. So that's sort of where I think Brendan's ideas need to shift a little bit. He wants more control. He almost want. I, I think Brendan Rodgers would rather win a stodgy game 2-0 than to win a very open game 4-1 or 5-1. Well, in fairness to Rodgers, I mean, what you just described to a large degree was what we did in his first tenure when Tierney was fit playing left back. I mean, Tierney was the bombing on attacking player and Lustig mm. sat back. We, we functionally in possession played three at the back most of the time uh, with Lustig as kind of the, the, the third center back. So with with, again, you know, this 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 is another one of my pet peeves it has been for quite some time. Uh, having let's say Brown and McGregor as the two sitting uh, defensive midfielders, the, the issue there becomes once again you're having one of those midfielders who's functionally not creative, not a not one who can pass, and and that that led to us being so lopsided. So that that's why I like the idea of having two of those players in the midfield as sitters, meaning that you, you basically have that platform of the three defenders with two defensive midfielders to create that solidity and transition. And it's not as if like when we had Brown as one of those two, you're, you're almost, you're getting lopsided, but you're also being redundant. I mean, you've got the three defensive players at center back functionally. You don't need a purely physical defensive midfielder uh, off of that defensive platform 
if you have if you allocate that to two creative passing um, line splitting type of midfielders, whether that's McGregor, whether that's Atate, whether that's Holm, then I, I, I think you, you've got enough. Because again, you go back to what what is defending, as Alan says, it, a lot of it's spatial. A lot of it is being in the right place. And uh, you know, so yes, you, you know, it, it is also on ball duels and being able mm. to win your man to man battles. But a lot of it's just having organization and positional. Yeah, well, what's interesting uh, about that was uh, Jap Stan was on the Stick to Football podcast with Roy Keane and Gary Neville and all that there. And he was saying that he thinks that football at the minute is easier to play than it was back when they were playing because the, the defensive systems and the general game systems are so rigid that you no longer have to defend just space. Whereas when he was at United, what was expected was, okay, they're going to be the attacking team. The two fullbacks are going to be gone. The sitting midfielders might be gone too. And you need to win your man-on-man battles and defend the space if needed. So that's sort of where you see, that's what Celtic defenders need to be able to do, really. 100%. Yeah, I've been uh, bloviating. So Alan, what what are your thoughts on this? Um. Well, I think the the point is that, like you say, we're 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 not currently optimally set up. I think we're all in agreement about that. So that's the first thing. You know, so so it's good to find a common ground to move forward from. Which of those solutions you go for? You know, they all make sense on paper. Um, you know, I think there's still weaknesses. You know, in terms of do we optimally have the ball playing centre backs? Um, you know, how do we defend in transition if McGregor's at the left? essentially nominally you know protecting the left back area and we still need you know still need to you still need to have width at times and you still need to have width in the game so so we've still probably got that limitation really but one i suppose the last thought for me is that you know we seem to be talking a lot a lot of chatter in the press around potentially the striking position as been a recruitment area for january but i would actually argue if we took any of those solutions I would say with Kyogo, Maeda, O, and Abada, we have four perfectly serviceable striking options to make any of those systems work. And my, I would be spending my money elsewhere. I'd still be looking for more pace, power, and athleticism in midfield. And I'd probably be, if we're going to go down the road we've talked about, you're probably looking at a kind of left wing back, really, uh, to kind of make that system come to life a bit more. So, mm. yeah, and, 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 and a goalkeeper. We can play. We yeah. can play higher with a bit more confidence and defend set pieces with a bit more confidence. We'll we'll cover uh, we'll cover the striking situation if and when it does change. If it does, certainly seem like Celtic are going to bring in a striker, whether that is a replacement or if it's um, you know because the Asian Cup's coming up, or if it's going to be a personnel personnel tactics type thing i i do think it's interesting it's going to be interesting if it is something that is going to be okay we're bringing in a starting striker what that means for kyogo because i said from the beginning while he was so good as a poacher and getting into the box kyogo would be in a a phenomenal number 10 um in terms of his ability to drop in to spaces find space where others wouldn't his his intelligence to stretch the game his touch his passing he he does have the ability to play as a number 10 but um whether or not that's the 
the overall plan or not. We'll wait and see if Celtic do eventually bring in a striker. And um, one thing that a few people have asked us to touch on today, Charlie Duran uh, being one of them, is the European Super League. So you might be wondering why we're talking about that. If you haven't seen the news today, the European Court of Justice ruled that uh, UEFA and FIFA cannot essentially. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tell clubs that they can't join a Super League. They can't uh, stop the formation of another one. It's essentially it's very straightforward, really. They're basically saying, yeah, UEFA, you don't have a monopoly on football the clubs can do whatever they want if they so choose to and since that ruling this morning the company that were involved in the super league uh sports development uh company a22 they released a new proposal for the super league which would look like this so there'd be 64 teams in three leagues star gold and blue those names definitely need a little bit of work that just sounds like uh, something thrown together by somebody who knows nothing about football uh, star gold and blue the star and gold leagues will have 16 club clubs each while the blue league has 32 clubs and um, so you're sort of looking at your, like your conference champions league your uh, europa league type thing and um, except the there will be groups of eight uh, there'll be a minimum of 14 matches a year and there'll be, there will be promotion relegation uh, to and from each of these leagues. Now, somebody kindly sent in the um, the rankings at the minute in European football and Celtic currently rank at number 57. So if the European Super League was to come in in that format, Celtic would be in the blue um, they're the 57th out of 64 teams, so they would make it in. Um, 
what do we think of this on like a, this could potentially be a real turning point for world football this, this is basically the same as what happened when uefa was founded and they started the european cup i mean there there was pushback from the leagues at the time they didn't want the european cup to become a competition and it did uh, so like chances are the super league is going to be become a competition and there could be be different teams playing in different competitions all throughout Europe. In theory, I mean this this is an, uh, a very very important day for football. Uh, I suspect you know we'll, we'll remember this day much as we remembered uh, the day in 1995 when uh, Jean-Marc Bosman won his individual case to you know to be able to be effectively play for any club that wanted to, to sign him. Um, a legal expert will probably blanch at my oversimplistic um, assertion that this is this is like the Bosman rule for for clubs essentially, but um, you know European laws on antitrust laws as they'd be called in the US, monopoly anti-monopoly laws are, are pretty consistent actually, and this is essentially UEFA's ability to have a monopolistic. Um, uh, oversight of European football and to organise, be the sole organiser of competitions for European clubs is essentially being challenged against that those sort of anti-monopolistic principles. And to no one's surprise, I suspect, um, you know, what has been prevailed is that they, they, they really can't do that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean a Super League's inevitable, um, um, and, but obviously it was surprising to see Super League proposals being presented to us straight off the off the traps because the way that these things go, this has been a long um, protracted legal journey as all legal journeys are, and therefore I suspect that the, the wealthy clubs and their wealthy lawyers have been well briefed and well uh, and well understand how this was going to go and well prepared for what was the likely outcome of it. So expect to see a lot of fluff and bluster in the next few days in terms of proposals and so forth. Um, but I think let's take a step back and, and, and look at Celtic. That's what we really sort of care about, really. Um, this is going to, as always with these things, as threats and opportunities, right? And I think Celtic are in a quite a specific position in European football in terms of, on the one hand, being incredibly well-placed for this, and on the other hand, it being um, potentially potentially an existential threat. And I'll, 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 that sounds very dramatic, but I'll, let, me, let me expand on that. Um, on the one hand, we know that, the whole of Scottish football is really a victim of the, the the English and Welsh monopoly over British football and the locking in of Sky TV money for the benefit of a certain part of of United Kingdom and not and not the other not, not the other part, and therefore you know the English and Welsh clubs uh, have access to all of that Sky and BT money and Scottish clubs get get crumbs off the table and used as essentially a schedule filler for for the for the paymaster. Um, so Celtic, you know, are in a very um, uh, impoverished football landscape, and 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 socially, as we know, I would say Celtic are in a, a relatively hostile environment. I mean, that's plainly evident if you look at the main pillars of Scottish society, whether it be the justice system, the police, the ruling governing body, uh, and the press. You know, it's it's not it's not a tr- terrific environment that Celtic operate in in that in that sense either. You know, and Celtic, you know, Celtic get about three and a half million pounds for winning the Scottish Premier League, and they're looking at probably nearly forty million euros for participating in the, in the Champions League. So, anything which expands Celtic's 
uh, you know, involvement in European football is likely to mean um, a massively increased revenues, which will obviously prick uh, Dermot Desmond's interest because he's solely interested in in money and, and no other thing. So, so the threat for Celtic in this situation, because in theory, obviously the, the, the Super League people will be on the front foot, A22, whatever you want to call them, and they've already got their proposals and their marketing fluff, as you've said, already out there. But there's, there's, there's also no reason why, um, you know, things like Atlantic Leagues or, you know, taking the best teams from a geographical selection of clubs in a particular part of Europe, there's no reason why that couldn't start to become uh, some kind of reality because all clubs in Europe now have got a massive leverage now with UEFA, given that, the, you know, if, if UEFA don't take clubs' interests uh, seriously, then there's this threat of, well, we'll just break away and do our own our own thing. The, the big the big threat that I see for Celtic on this is really comes down to ownership. I mean, Celtic are probably one of the the most cash rich, well run football clubs in Europe from a financial perspective, not from a footballing operations perspective, from a financial perspective. And therefore, you know, if this kind of pan European extended um, league were to come to fruition, and Celtic were part of it. In, in in simple terms, they would be ripe for a takeover. There would be significant interest from significant people in in taking a cash rich club with the infrastructure and support that Celtic have got, uh, uh, and 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 you know that then leaves the door open for you know all sorts of horrendous uh, outcomes for Celtic in terms of ownership, and that's my biggest one of my biggest fears in all of this. I think there's opportunity here to leave a culturally and financially landlocked country and expand the horizons of the football club. But there's, I think there's a massive, almost almost existential threat of ending up in hands of people that we would never want to see near the football club. What this also does is opens the door to the further growth of the Saudi league within the European structures as well, because there's already proposed, like UEFA have already pandered enough to the super clubs that were looking to move to the Super League initially by changing the Champions League to the Swiss model. And they already pandered to them already with the amount of money that is weighted towards the top versus the bottom. But what this does allow is it, it could be open season. And I do agree with you that why were Newcastle United taken over? It had nothing to do with, you know, Mike Ashley. It had nothing to do with their success in the last 20 years. Why Newcastle were taken over was because they've got a huge stadium. They've got a huge following. And that's a brand that can really grow very, very quickly because it's already a huge club. And Celtic are like that as well. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I do think that would it would open the door to a potential takeover and James you know history will tell you there's enough bad owners out there and I'm not going to say be careful what you wish for when it comes to a takeover for Celtic but (laughs) but all you have to do is look at what happened to some of the biggest institutions in English football when all of this cash suddenly came into the Premier League there are giant clubs who are currently sitting in the bottom of the championship and League One and League Two, and some don't even exist anymore because 
a lot of money came in very, very quick, which opened the door to a lot of very, very opportunistic people who were not good people. So, um, yeah, that would be my main concern with this. I, I think the interesting aspect of this is going to be how much of it is merit-based, at least uh, in a surface level, meaning that how much of this ends up being things like coefficient-driven versus, you know, there was talk uh, and I think structure within the initial Super League proposal about some of these almost wild card type slots that get used. And I think the irony in all this is that one of the existential risks to Celtic is that if it's too merit based, meaning that with us being at 57, that's not that far from falling out of it. <laughs> and that could turn into a spiral of. You know, some of the the, the great uh, historic clubs that because of the shifts in the industry, whether that's in England down into the championship or even lower, some of them uh, or some of the Baltic uh, nation, uh, great clubs that have kind of been left in the dust, so to speak, financially, that that would be I'm not saying it's likely to happen or going to happen, but it, it's a scenario that's not, you know, completely off the the radar being in uh, the coefficient level that we are in, in a scenario where we do end up losing the league this season, theoretically, and then, you know, maybe don't qualify for champions league next summer and not have a great Europa league, even, you know, there's, you know, these things can kind of cascade. And if there weren't these kind of, because to your, to your point, I mean, clubs like, uh, you know, red star, like, uh, Celtic. I mean, th- there are certain clubs that if I was a closed system that wanted to attract and build the best kind of global or pan-European sporting product, I mean, Celtic would absolutely be part of that. So would Red Star. So would probably, you know, Dynamo Zagreb and some of these great clubs of, of uh, you know, history. And so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this all kind of shakes out because I, I don't think it's just the – because I agree, the ownership aspect of this, uh, the barriers to entry to get one of these limited slots in this pyramid is, is going to make them a, uh, you know, a, a, a limited commodity. And that means price goes up and attractiveness goes up and interest goes up. And uh, But I, I do think there's a sporting risk here that's also not – an abstract one, which hmm. is further reason for us to get our act together <laughs> in in um, running the football operations side a lot uh, at a much higher level. Well, from memory, the original Super League proposal did have an initial uh, situation system based thing where it weighted the historical relevance of the club as part of the. The whether or not they would be considered, so I think Celtic would get in on that. Um, I I remember there was a, a a good while ago now, but a couple of years ago, Ajax and Copenhagen and a couple of the other clubs that have historical relevance to the competition, as well as Celtic, were to put forward a proposal to UEFA that give more relevance to historical results within the competition. Um, while qualifying because I remember there was one year Celtic, Ajax, Copenhagen all had to go through four different rounds of qualifying to get there and they're like what the fuck like we're 
Like we won this competition so many times uh, between us that it's ridiculous that clubs of our stature have to do this. So yeah, there, there's definitely there's definitely going to be a few different proposals coming around the corner. Um, Alan, if I were to say to you, Celtic would be, there's a new league being proposed. It's the biggest clubs in the world um, or, or in Europe who are going to compete in this competition. It's sort of like the Champions League, except it can only be entered by people who uh, either win their league or have won the Champions League previously. So you're saying Celtic, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Ajax, Red Star, uh, sort of an old school Champions League format. Would you go for that? I mean, I don't think anything that's a confection predicated on, you know, results in the 1950s is is really very fair. <laughs> uh, and to me, the reason that they introduced these things is just to try and find a, a veneer of, of um, civility to get some of the old clubs like Real Madrid and what have you guaranteed, Man United yeah. and all those guaranteed to be in it. Um, and well, so the I'm reason that I say it is that it, it it can't really be done on it can't really be done on coefficient points because coefficient points are UEFA. So if this isn't a UEFA situation, it it won't be on coefficient. So 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 I'm, okay, maybe I don't I don't know if I'm asking answering the right question, but in terms of what would I like to see happen, and bearing in mind these changes usually usually always lead to things getting worse, right? That's that's just life. But, um, you know, I think there's, there's merit and there is, I mean, I, I, the idea that there's a separate organization like a LIV or like in, you see in darts where there's a BDO and a BDA or whatever it was, or like boxing where there's like 15 different divisions and all this sort of 15 different, you know, belt. To, to me, that's just a nonsense, right? It just means that the best teams never play the best teams. You get different rules, regulations and, and so on and so forth. And it's And every competition that you see, you just think, well, yeah, you win that, but you're not better than this guy over here who's, you know, in a completely different, you know, conference or whatever. So anything like that, I just throw up my hands. A good outcome here, or the, or should I be more precise, the least bad outcome, again, seems to be the theme of the show, would be that, you know, the, 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 the clubs, the leagues like Spain, England, Germany, Italy, France, maintain their structures. These are, these are by and large competitive leagues, um, maybe tighten up on rules to make them a bit more competitive in terms of, you know, finances. Maybe more trickle down, all that kind of stuff. But allowing allowing clubs in other European countries to come together to form geographically sensible configurations, because you know Celtic have got no history of playing teams from Croatia, right? But you know, imagine if you created a league around that sort of region, you would get a lot of, uh, you know pretty tasty games you would probably overall raise the standard um similarly in northern europe if you had a northern european league of of the best clubs that would be a competitive league it would be attractive to sponsors it would all be within the umbrella of uefa meaning meaning that you know there's still jeopardy there there's still um not guarantee you'll get into a into a, a pan-european competition but there has to be always jeopardy there always has to be the ability it all has to be within a pyramid. Even if you go from a European league down to a, a national league, it's some, you have to do that at some point. You've got to work out how you do that. That, to me, would be a reasonable outcome. It would allow the bigger clubs um, potentially to grow, but it would allow clubs to 
you know, to, to go through on, on merit and it would take away all this nonsense about, oh, we won it 50 years ago, therefore we should be guaranteed in perpetuity that we get get a seat at the table and all that that rubbish. So uh, to me, that would be a, a, a decent outcome. I don't think it's a great outcome. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, it would it would lead to some very smaller countries having probably quite impoverished leagues at the end of it. But then again, there's no reason why you couldn't replicate that that, you know, you know, lower down, you could have a, a northern league, a North European league too, or whatever. You know what I mean? And then, you know, national leagues actually become really a, a community leagues, which, which which are no doubt passionately followed in their own right and at their own level. Interesting. I don't think we're going to solve it somehow. I, I, I don't think we'll get a say somehow. Um, I think this will be done in no. boardrooms <laughs> and handshakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, history history does not show a good uh, relationship between people who are making the decisions and the people that these decisions affect. So uh, yeah, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. I think it'll be fun to see Celtic potentially play teams that we don't get to usually play i think that that's the that's almost why i would rather play europa league sometimes because you get to experience matchups that never usually would be matchups um and even like as a competition now the conference league in the in the uefa structure is actually probably more interesting than any other of the other competitions because the Champions League is just the same teams playing each other at the same time in the competition every single year whereas in the Conference League you get to see you know the champions of Bulgaria take on the the champions of Iceland and it's just it's just fun it's what football used to be um well and so, uh, p- parody drives a more entertaining product and yeah. if you can if you can get the parody at the highest level then you end up getting really elite entertainment because you have the top players in the world competing against each other on teams that are reasonably well-matched. And I think that's been the, the increasing problem with European uh, global, but European football in the last 25 years is because the domestic leagues have become so skewed financially that you don't have actual sporting competition from an entertainment perspective, you have a lot of, you know, big clubs beating up on the bottom half of their domestic tables in games that really are not that compelling from an entertainment perspective. So that's that's the inherent problem with the Scottish uh, league product from a, a multimedia perspective is because the vast majority of the games are not good entertainment products for export purposes. So that's, you know, you go back to why do they get such a low uh, amount in media rights? Uh, It's because, you know, a lot of the product stinks, whether it's the, the camera angles or the, the competitive balance in the league, you know, the, all of these things are detriments. And I, I'll, I'll just throw out again, for anyone who's actually interested in this kind of stuff or more of a deep dive, I, I tweeted about it. Um, so there, there's a podcast called Are You Not Entertained? And it was started uh, by uh, a guy I know from my field named Grant Williams, who's been a financial journalist and a participant in the financial markets for a long time. And Roger Mitchell, who's probably a familiar name uh, to people watching. And uh, so they've gone over this for the last four years and 
really had in-depth conversation about what's the the historical dynamics, but also what's going to happen in the future. And Roger just published a book called uh, Sports Perfect Storm that looks at all of this. And and to his credit, he has been uh, very accurate in seeing a lot of this stuff coming in in recent years. Uh, so again, for anyone that's what people that are really interested in this topic, uh, those are two places to get really good information as far as what the dynamics are, what are the politics, what's the financial backdrop, and and most importantly, possibly, what's the intersection of the media rights aspect, how much big money is for driving this, and and what that means for a lot of these domestic leagues where the financing for them is going to likely dry up. And yeah. How do they how do they respond to that? Uh, and, and Rogers called it Hollywood versus art house. And that, you know, that's kind of the, the Galacticos entertainment product versus the community um, mindset of the legacy of football and, and mm. how those two things are colliding. Um, and, and that's so, yeah, it's uh, th- these, these are tectonic plate type shifts. And I think to Alan's point, this ruling may be kind of the point of no return where, you know, we're, we're you're going to see rapid change in the next few years, uh, not only because of the legal ruling, but as um, as financial, uh, you know, things like recessions tend to drive these things at a ra- more rapid pace because that's when, you know, the tide goes out and and uh, the, the money dries up even faster. Mm. Well, on your point about the, the quality of the league or the product, I mean, You've got Derek Adams, the Ross County manager, saying the exact same thing. I mean, like, and and this is what happens. Like, uh, UEFA also brought in the Nations League, and people thought it was a terrible idea. But what that actually did was UEFA had looked at the national structures, seen that everybody hates international breaks because the games are usually mean nothing um, unless they're qualifiers, and they're usually played at a level that's not what international football used to be. So now you've got teams that are the exact same standard or relatively close and the games have been absolutely brilliant. And you've got Germany against Spain. Suddenly, wow, that's an international break that people are tuning into. And then you've got TV deals coming in on the back of that. In Ireland, it's something similar to Scotland in that um, it came out over the last couple of weeks that one of the main reasons that it has not been shown or there's been no interest and in, there actually was a, a sky deal that fell through. And the reason it fell through was because they looked at the league and looked at the infrastructure, looked at the cameras that they could set up and the league just couldn't support it. It didn't have the infrastructure in place. And every year or last season, every league of Ireland game that was shown in on either RTE, which is the uh, national broadcaster or on Virgin media, which is a private broadcaster, they were based in the, uh, Tallis Stadium, which is the best stadium currently available in the League of Ireland. So you have got, you know, that's just the way it works. If the product looks shit on TV, it's not going to be on TV because people will tune out very, very quickly to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird time for football. It's it's certainly going to be interesting over the next couple of months to see what happens. Um, any final thoughts before we finish up the show? I know we've talked a little bit less about Celtic than we usually do, but I mean, Alan, all these things are important and they do, they do affect Celtic. So uh, my question is, what is Dermot Desmond's price point? Is it a uh, hundred million, 200 million, 400 million? What's uh, Celtic currently valued at? 
I don't I don't know actually uh, off the top of my head, but um, as long as he makes the number in his head that he wants, he'll be happy. Um, yeah, a couple of points to close. One is I, th- I, th- I thought the Derek Adams quote was deserving of adult debate, and of course in Scotland it just gets shouted down and drowned, drowned out by by self interest and, and and piss takes and all this sort of thing. It's a shame. I think it was. A, I think he raised important points that should should were worthy of debate, whether you agree with them or not. They were worthy of of, of comment. The last thing I'll leave you with is just a, a thought. Um, again, you know, this ruling, whilst coming out of the blue for most football supporters, will not have become a surprise to most chief executives of, of, of football clubs. This will have been predicted or, or, or signposted for some time, such as the way of these kind of legal processes. Um, you know, people question why Peter Lowell was brought back as chairman of Celtic. Well, what one one of the, the the plus sides of Peter Lowell that was always put forward was the sort of deep relationships he formed at the was it EC fourteen level the European basically it's a sort of industry talking shop of like of of, of European clubs um, of which he was purportedly a reasonably influential figure so don't be surprised if this was signposted and known about and that's one of the reasons uh, that there, there there may well have been a couple more but something one of the reasons. That, that Lowell is back in that position as being someone who's seemed to be a relatively safe pair of hands in navigating the next few months when all of this hell could break loose around what does the future look like. I'm not defending Lowell. I'm just saying I'm looking at it and saying that that looks like a reasonable, a reasonable, uh, you know, um, reading of the tea leaves, if you like. Mm. I'm going to clip that, James, and put it up with uh, Alan says that he he wanted Peter Lawwell back. Ford apologist Morrison says. Oh, that would be the way. And by the way, F the Green Brigade. (laughs) Go on, Ender. Enjoy yourself. It's Christmas. Ah. Please do. <laughs> just as a, <laughs> as a sociology experiment, it would just be wonderful. <laughs> it would be. It would trigger so many people, actually. <laughs> but that's not that. what I'm saying. Clearly, it's not what I'm yeah. saying. Well, and as, just a quick second, because we're wrapping up, is um, I think that the as we look ahead to more Celtic-specific, uh, the game against Livingston at home, uh, another important litmus test i think is that uh you know they they present some very specific issues on set pieces etc long throws those those kinds of things they have some you know some pretty big players and physical players but it absolutely should be another game where we 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 handle them comfortably and this comes back to uh whether or not rogers will have reached a point where his appetite for risk maybe and making some switches has has crossed the threshold (laughs) given what's been going on or whether or not we you know keep getting kind of doubling tripling down on plan a just with different mixes of players so i i I actually because if you're going to experiment quote unquote if you're going to take risk by changing the shape home to livingston sure as heck should be the the game that you do it uh, given the fixtures that we have coming up. So I think, you know, w- one may not normally consider home against Livingston as a as a potentially big game. And I think for the obvious reasons, given the form and all that stuff and where we're at in the league, but I think even more so from a 
how Rogers is thinking and what he's going to do relative to all of these issues that we're talking about. Saturday may actually be a seminal game in, in that regard. Yeah. There's a, a meme on the internet where somebody says, um, I asked my landlord to raise the rent. That's how much I believe in the hustle life. And uh, <laughs> that's how I feel about Celtic going into any Livingston game. It just seems like every time that Livingston is coming up, Celtic have done something stupid in the previous two weeks to make this a pressure game. And there, there, at least it's not in Livingston. At least it's a home game where there's a little bit more open space and you can sort of play your game. But uh, Well, yeah, and, and where, where the uh, mood is so wonderful and <laughs> I'm sure the crowd's going to be yeah. in... Uh, full blossom and form. So let's. Well, <laughs> also, hopefully, yeah, we're covering, we covering all the bases on that. I think it's actually. I think it's going to be the way things are going. It's going to be a disadvantage that there'll be no no away no away fans in the ground at the derby. Mm. Yep. Nothing, yeah. nothing. Nothing. Unif- nothing unifies the crowd like it, like a big pocket of those people in the corner. <laughs> For sure. Being charming. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a fun few weeks. Uh, hopefully, Santa Claus doesn't get booed this time uh, this weekend. Because, <laughs> well, I, I, so I posted this, and I, I I have to share it again for anyone that's interested. Go to my Twitter feed, and I retweeted a twenty minute Tim's uh, tweet about the booing of Santa Claus, and I linked to an article that summarized a story from Philadelphia from I think nineteen sixty two. Uh, where Philadelphia Eagles fans uh, not only booed Santa Claus, uh, who was this poor guy who uh, was a fan who went to the game in a Santa Claus outfit, and the guy who worked for the club that was supposed to do it was sick or he couldn't make it in because of the snowstorm or whatever. And it's this whole story about this guy who just got called in to do it out of the stands and then proceeded to get impaled with snowballs <laughs> <laughs> and it, it goes through his whole life itself it's a great article so go if, if you want to hear a real story about santa claus getting booed uh, and and uh, assaulted then um uh go to go to my twitter feed at joko james is at the joko best james. place to get that um i would was going to say this is going to be our last show of the year but it's not because we can't not talk about the derby match um which is the 30th. So between now and then Celtic take on Livingston and Dundee. And then on Saturday, the 30th of December, Celtic host Rangers. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be make or break. This is the point in time where a season can either turn on its head or it can go full steam ahead. So hopefully it's the the latter for Brandon Rogers and this side. I, I just want to take this opportunity to say happy Christmas to everybody who listens to us, watches us on YouTube comments, leaves a, uh, questions for us on twitter thanks very much for all your support uh, over the course of the year and um thank you for listening to the podcast as well it really is appreciated and i hope you have got some sort of entertainment out of us over the last uh, couple of months since uh, celtic have come back under the guile of brendan rogers my thanks as well to alan morrison thanks very much for your hard work over the course of the season so far uh, putting together yeah, all the you. numbers tireless work celtic by numbers is your website where you can get all of his uh own data stuff that he gathers and then also on Celt- the celtic way which are yet to give me a free subscription despite the <laughs> fact that i advertise them on the show every single week uh but james Jico james people can find your articles on the celtic way as well 
Yep, and Twitter. Yeah, uh, more so on Twitter these days. But yep. Uh, thank you very much for all your help as well. And um, yeah, that's where we will park the Christmas special of the Huddle Breakdown. We'll be back again in about a week or so talking ahead or after the Derby. We'll decide after our 10th Christmas sandwich and uh, if we can get the brandy down for 30 seconds. We'll somehow put together a show over the next couple of weeks. But we shall chat to you then. Good luck. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.